Chapter 1, Part 1 of Commentary in the Gospel of John, Book 12, by Cyril of Alexandria, translated by Reverend Thomas Randall. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1. That the Son is by nature God, even though we find him calling the Father his God. 2017. But go unto my brethren, and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. For reasons which we have given, Christ suffers not Mary to touch him, though in her love of God she greatly yearned for this boon, but still rewards her for her watchful care, and doubly requites her for her passionate faith and love for him, showing that those who are diligent in his service meet with a recompense. And what was even yet more glorious, she achieved the deliverance of woman from the frailties of old, for in her first, I mean in Mary, all womankind, so to speak, are crowned with a double honor. For though at first she thus lamented, and made Christ an occasion for weeping, she turned her mourning into joy when she was told to forbear from tears by him who by his own sentence of old had made woman easy to be overcome by the attacks of sorrow for god had said to the woman in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children but just as he once made her subject unto sorrow in paradise when she hearkened to the voice of the serpent and ministered to the devil's wiles so now again in a garden he bids her refrain from weeping. Releasing her from that curse which bound her unto sorrow, he bids her be the first messenger of tidings of great joy, and proclaim to the disciples his journey heavenward. That as the first woman, the mother of all mankind, was condemned for listening to the devil's voice, and through her the whole race of women, so also this woman, in that she had hearkened to our Saviour's words, and announced tidings fraught with life eternal, might deliver the entire race of women from the charge of old. The Lord therefore grants unto Mary that, besides being delivered from tears, and from a heart ever prone to sorrow, her feet also should be beautiful. For, as the prophet exclaims, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good things. While the feet of that woman of old time were not beautiful, for no good tidings did she bring when she enticed our forefather to transgress the divine command. That Mary is worthy our admiration we may infer from the fact that she was deemed worthy of mention in prophecy. For what said the prophet concerning her, and the women with her, who announced unto the holy disciples the resurrection of the Saviour? Ye women who come from the sight, come hither, for it is a people that hath not understanding. For this divine prophecy bids these women, true lovers of Christ, come as it were with quickened steps, that they may tell what they themselves have seen and condemns the insensibility of the Jews, and that they laugh to scorn the words of our Saviour Christ himself concerning the resurrection. And though there were also other women there, for this the other evangelists are pleased to record, 
and the wise John made mention only of Mary, we shall yet find no discrepancy in the accounts of these holy men. For it is probable that John made mention only of Mary Magdalene, because her love for Christ was more impassioned, and she outran the others, so that she first saw the tomb, and was in the garden, and visited every place that was nigh unto the sepulchre, to search for the body. For she thought, in fact, that the Lord had been taken away, for results are always ascribed to those who take the lead in counsel and action, though there may be others who cooperate in both. Therefore, to her honor and glory and perpetual renown, the Savior vouchsafed unto Mary the duty of proclaiming to the brethren the tidings contained in his words, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and my God and your God and do thou for thy part accept this great and profound mystery, not suffering thine heart to vault over the measure of the truth of the divine doctrines. Observe how the only begotten word of God came among us, that we also might be even as he is, so far as is possible for our nature to attain thereto, and so far as relates unto our new creation by grace. For he humbled himself, that he might exalt that which was by nature lowly, to his own high station, and wore the form of a servant, though he was by nature Lord and Son of God, that he might uplift that which was by nature enslaved to the dignity of sonship, in conformity with his own likeness, and in his image. How, and in what sense, then, he becoming one of us as man, in order that we also might be like him, that is, gods and sons, receives our attributes into himself, and gives back unto us his own, you may be well anxious to inquire. I will explain, then, as far as I am able. In the first place, then, though we are servants by rank and nature, for creatures are subject to their creator. He calls us his brethren, and designates God the common father of himself and us. And, making humanity his own, by taking our likeness upon him, he calls our God his God, though he is his son by nature. That, as we mount up to his exceeding great dignity of station by likeness to him, for it is not because we are by nature sons of God that we are so called, for he cries in our hearts by his own spirit, Abba, Father. So also he, since he took our form, for he became man according to the scriptures, might have God for his God, though he was truly God by nature, and proceeded from him. Be not therefore offended, though you hear him calling God his God, but rather contemplate his words in a teachable spirit, and attentively consider their true meaning. For he says that God is both his Father and our God, and both sayings are true. For in very truth the God of the universe is Christ's Father, but not ours by nature but rather our God as our Creator and Sovereign Lord. But the Son, as it were, blending himself with us, 
vouchsafes to our nature the dignity that is in a special and peculiar sense his own, calling him that begat him the common father of us all, while, on the other hand, he receives into himself, by taking upon him our likeness, that which belonged to our nature. For he calls his father his God, being unwilling, through his inherent love and mercy toward mankind, to dishonor our likeness that he had taken upon himself. If, then, you choose in ignorance to cavil at this saying, and it seem intolerable to you that the Lord should say that God the Father was his God, you will then, in your perversity, be bringing a charge against the scheme for your own redemption. And when you ought to be offering up thanksgiving, you will be dishonoring your benefactor, and be foolishly objecting to the manner in which he manifested his love towards you. For if he humbled himself, despising shame, and became a man for your sake, on your head is the charge of humiliation and to him who chose to undergo this for your sake, exceeding great is the honor due. And I am amazed that you have ears merely for the eclipse of glory, for he humbled himself for our sake, and consider not its restoration, and regarding only the degradation, reflect not upon the exaltation. For how was he humiliated, if you do not regard him as perfect, as being God? And in what sense was he degraded, if you do not take into account the lofty attributes of his ineffable nature? Therefore, when he was perfect and all-sufficient as God, he humbled himself for your sake, transforming himself to your likeness. And though he was high-exalted as the Son of God, and of the very essence of the Father, he degraded himself, being mulcted of the attributes of divine glory, so far as his nature admitted. As therefore now he is at the same time God and man, being high exalted because of his parentage, for he is God of God, and truly begotten of his Father, and also made lowly for our sake for he became man for us. Be of a tranquil mind when you hear him saying, I ascend unto my father and your father, and my God and your God. For it was very meet and right that, as being by nature God and Son of God, he should call him that begat him his father, and that, as being man, even as we are men, he should call God his God. 18. Mary Magdalene cometh and telleth the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and how that he had said these things unto her. That race which is specially subject to weakness, I mean the race of women, is restored by the loving-kindness of our Saviour, who in a manner rolled up in one the source and origin of our infirmities, and ameliorated them for the future. For Mary announced that she had seen the Lord, who had escaped from the bonds of death, and had heard his voice, and brought to the disciples the words of life, and the first fruits of the divine gospel. 1920. 
When, therefore, it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had said this, he showed unto them his hands and his side. On the selfsame day on which he had appeared unto Mary, and discoursed with her, he also showed himself to the holy disciples, who dreaded the intolerable attacks of the impious Jews, and were, on that account, collected together in a certain house. For it was not likely that they who had been so instructed, and had often been bidden to make haste to escape from the wrath of their would-be murderers, would be found lacking in proper prudence. Christ miraculously appears unto them. For while the doors were shut, as the Apostle says, Christ unexpectedly stood in the midst, by his ineffable divine power rising superior to the chain of cause and effect, and showing himself able to dispense with the design and method appropriate to his action. For let no man say, How did the Lord, whose body was of solid flesh, enter without let or hindrance, though the doors were shut? But rather, let him reflect that the evangelist is not here speaking of one of ourselves, but rather of him who is enthroned by the side of God the Father, and who easily doth whatsoever he will. For he that was by nature the true God was of necessity not subject unto the sequences of cause and effect, as are the creatures that owe their being to him but rather does he exercise lordship over necessity itself, and due and appropriate methods of performance. For how did he make the sea a forty footing unto his feet, and walk thereon as upon dry land, though we are not so framed that we can tread upon the paths of the sea? And how did he perform the rest of his marvellous works with godlike power? All these things, you will say, surpass man's understanding. Put this miracle of Christ side by side with the rest, and do not, following the opinion of certain men, who, in the folly of their hearts, have been led astray to judge falsely, imagine on account of this very occurrence that Christ rose again without his human body, wholly bereft thereof and severed from the temple that he had taken on himself. For if thou canst not understand the working of God's ineffable nature, why dost thou not rather cry out against the infirmity of man's reason? For that would be the wiser course. And then silently acquiesce in the limit prescribed to you by the Creator. For in rejecting the conclusion of wisdom, thou doest wrong to the great mystery of the resurrection, on which all our reliance is fixed. For remember the exclamation of Paul, If the dead are not raised, neither hath Christ been raised, and if Christ hath not been raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. And again, Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we witnessed of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, 
if so be that the dead are not raised. For what can be raised up save that which is fallen? Or what restored to life save that which is bowed down in death? And how shall we expect to rise again, if so be that Christ raised not up his own temple, making himself, for us, the firstfruits of them which are asleep, and the firstborn from the dead? Or how shall this mortal put on immortality, if, as some think, it be lost in total annihilation? For how shall it escape this fate, if it have no hope of a new life? Do not, then, swerve from orthodoxy in the faith, because a miracle was accomplished, but rather be wise, and add this to the other marvelous works that Christ did. For observe how, by unexpectedly entering when the doors were shut, Christ showed once more that he was by nature God, and no other than he, who had erewhile dwelt among them, and also by laying bare the wounded side of his body, and by showing the print of the nails, he gave us complete satisfaction that he had raised that temple of his body which had hung upon the cross, and had restored to life that body which he had worn, thereby subduing death, which is due to all flesh, inasmuch as he was by nature life and God. What need, then, was there for him to show them his hands and side, if, as some perversely think, he did not rise again with his body? And, if he wished his disciples not to entertain this idea concerning him, why did he not rather appear in another form, and, disdaining the likeness of flesh, conjure up other thoughts in their minds? But, as it is, he thought it of so great importance that they should be convinced of the resurrection of his body, that, when the time even seemed to call him to change his body into some form of ineffable and surpassing majesty, he resolved in his providence to appear once more as he had been of old, that he might not be thought to be wearing any other form than that in which also he had suffered crucifixion for that our eyes could not have endured the glory of the holy body if christ had chosen to reveal it unto the disciples before he ascended to the father is easily to be inferred when we reflect upon his transfiguration on the mount before the holy disciples for the blessed matthew the evangelist writes that jesus took peter and james and john and went up into the mountain and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as lightning, and his garments became white as snow. And they could not endure the sight, but fell on their faces. Very appropriately, then, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he had not yet transformed the temple of his body into its due and proper majesty, still appeared in his original shape not wishing the belief in the resurrection to be transferred to another form or body than that which he had received from the Holy Virgin, in which also he was crucified and died, according to the scripture, the power of death extending only over flesh, from which also it was driven forth. 
For if his body after death did not rise again, what sort of death was vanquished, and in what way was the power of corruption weakened? For it could not be by the death of a single rational being, or soul, or angel, or even the very word of God. When, then, the power of death has reference only to that which is doomed by nature to corruption, with this it is that the power of the resurrection is concerned, and with this alone, in order that the dominion of the Lord of this world might be taken away. The entry of our Lord through the closed doors must be classed, by men of wisdom, with the other miracles that he wrought. He then greeted his holy disciples. Peace be unto you, he says, meaning by peace, himself. For while Christ is present among men, it follows that the tranquility of their minds is assured unto them. Paul also declared that this boon is granted to those who believe on him, when he says, The peace of Christ, which passeth all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts. Meaning by the peace of Christ, which passeth all understanding, nothing else than his spirit of which, if any man partake, he shall be filled with everything that is good. 20. The disciples, therefore, were glad when they saw the Lord. Hereby also the blessed evangelist testifies to the truth of our Saviour's words, when he says that the disciples were full of peace and joy of heart when they saw Jesus. For we remember the mysterious utterance that he spake unto them concerning his precious cross and resurrection from the dead, saying, A little while, and ye behold me no more, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no one taketh away from you. The Jews, indeed, whose minds were transported by a frenzy of fury, rejoiced when they saw Jesus nailed to the cross, while the heart of the holy disciples was heavy laden with an intolerable burthen of sorrow. But as he is by nature life, he overcame the power of death and rose again, and the joy of the Jews was extinguished, while the heaviness of the holy disciples was turned into joy, and nothing could rob or deprive them of their soul's delight. Christ, having died once for all, to put away sin, dieth no more, as is written. For he is alive for evermore, and of a surety he will preserve those whose hope is in him, in joy without ceasing. He once more greets them with the oft-repeated assurance, Peace be unto you, laying down, as it were, this law for the children of the church. Therefore also, more especially in the assembling and gathering of ourselves together in holy places, at the very commencement of the blessed mystery of the Eucharist, we repeat this saying to one another. For our being at peace with each other, and with God, must be accounted a fountain and source of all good. Therefore also Paul, when he prays that those who are called may enjoy the highest of all blessings, says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and also when he invites those who have not yet believed to make their peace with god he says we are ambassadors on behalf of christ as though god were entreating by us we beseech you on behalf of christ be ye reconciled to god none the less also the prophet isaiah exhorts us crying out let us make peace with him let us make peace who come the meaning of the saying well befits the dispenser of peace or rather the peace of all men that is christ for he is our peace according to the scripture end of chapter one part one